Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. With 18 years in the financial services industry, Valerie is Series 7, 66, and 63 license. Valerie obtained her bachelor's degree in finance at Ramapo College of New Jersey. She moved from New York to Virginia in 2002, where she began her career as American Funds or at American Funds as a shareholder services representative. She became a financial advisor for Edward Jones in 2004, where she remained until joining Freedom Street Partners in October of 2017. Currently, Valerie serves as Freedom Street Partners' chief operating officer. And prior to us jumping into the podcast, which I'm looking forward to do, Valerie's actually a member of the COO Alliance. I have to read a quick disclosure because of the industry that they're in. So securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FNRF, FINRA and SIPC, investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc., Freedom Street Partners, is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. Investing involves huge risk, and you may incur a profit or loss regardless of strategy selected. COO Alliance and Cameron Herald are not affiliated with Raymond James. So there we go. We are done the disclosure, and we can dive into the uh, the interview, although I'm going to read something else just for fun. My broker up in Canada just sent me something and said that this is the fifth best buying moment of their career other than 1974, 1982, 1987, and 2008. So this has nothing to do with Raymond James, but I'm really excited right now because this is a real, I feel it's a great opportunity to be buying stocks because there's a lot of great companies out there. So and we're not going to yep. talk stocks today, but how are you doing, Valerie? <laughs> We're doing good. I mean, obviously, we're in unprecedented times, and so I think we're all we're all feeling a little uncomfortable. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a strange era. So, just so that people know, when we're recording this, uh, this will be going live in about six weeks. But we're right in the midst of the kind of shutdown of of the global markets and the global economy and the global healthcare systems and schools. It's March 18th as we're recording right now, and literally like restaurants are being shut and schools being shut. So there's a little bit of a global panic related to the COVID-19 healthcare crisis right now. So that's what you're talking about. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about your your role with Freedom Street Partners and how you guys are set up, and then I'll just dive into some questions related to you and the COO role as well. Sure. So um, it's funny, as I st- when I started first with Freedom Street, I was kind of one of a utility player, I would say. Um, dove in, did whatever was needed, whether it was working on our financials, um, calling clients, placing trades, um, helping other financials, supporting uh, financial advisors and supporting them, to now stepping, uh, just recently stepping into the role of Chief Operating Officer for Freedom Street Partners. So um, we've come a long way in the three years that we've um, been in business. And um, and coming into the role, it's been, um, well, COO Alliance is one of the things I'm doing right to help help coach myself and uh, just, and talk to other COOs that are out there that are going through the same experiences. So um, that's been helpful. And, um, and uh, what else? So what we do at Freedom Street is we not only put clients, but we also help other financial advisors build a continuity plan for their business. Um, so we help them through transition and succession planning and help transition their clients as well to affiliate with Freedom Street. 
So that's different from a lot of the different financial advisory firms out there too. So prior to being COO, what role were you in at Freedom Street Partners? And, and just tell us about the transition from your prior role to the role you're in now. How did that go? Yep. So my prior role before, I, my title was Director of Operations. Um, and that meant a lot of things. So because we have two sides of the house, right, we have client service. Um, we want to make sure the experience for our clients is there, that they're um, receiving communication from our firm. We're uh, running an ethical and profitable business um, and, and making sure that they experience client events. Um, they hear from their advisors. And then on the other side, we have our operations that are helping other advisors transition their practices. And so that entails a lot of um, background work to make sure that the transi their transition goes smoothly. Um, a lot of it's coaching, uh, making sure that they are comfortable with the process, that they know the steps that are needed to take, that they need to take with their business, um, and that their transition goes smoothly. And so before, I was kind of in both parts. So running around, making sure clients are served, and then also making sure our advisors are being um, able to transition their practice smoothly. Tell me a little bit about what's happened just to your role and, and how you've had to operate in your role over the last week or two as, as companies are starting to move towards virtual teams due to this COVID-19 crisis. How have you had to adapt during that? Yeah, so it's really it's really interesting uh, at times. So we... Um, we have a people first mentality at our office. And so because we um, focus on people first, we opted to go remote. So we are all equipped with laptops and able to do our job remotely, but it's the first time we actually had our entire team not made off together. And so it has been challenging trying to keep in touch and make sure you know we know what each person's working on. Um, it's been a lot of phone calls and Zoom meetings. So that's been a... <laughs> an interesting challenge um, to try and get through with the team. And is that how you're staying on top of it with just phone and Zoom? Or are you you're using any other technology tools to stay on top of it? Um, those have been mostly what we've been doing, um, you know, sharing screens so we can see uh, what someone's working on, whether it's spreadsheets or information, and then, and then just a lot of, yeah, video conferencing, I would say. What kind of discussions that now you're also in the midst of a slightly different crisis from most companies as well, where um, we're having, you know, a start of a little bit of a financial meltdown right now where the markets are finally correcting. I mean, it's been 11 or 12 years since the last correction, 2008, 2009. So we've been due. Um, but a lot of comp a lot of people, you know, either don't remember it or are too young for it, or they simply just thought that we were going to continue on forever. Um, so you're actually dealing with not only the medical crisis, but also simultaneously a lot of clients that are probably worried and advisors are probably worried about just the markets and and how far fast they've corrected. How are you dealing with that additional strain on the business? Yeah, so definitely interesting time um, because half of our team, I would say, has been through a market correction. But since that last one was 11 years ago, there's a lot of advisors on our team that actually this is their first time going through it as mm -hmm. well and their clients first time going through it. So um, those of us that are seasoned have been coaching our advisors on what to say and making sure that they know that this is an imperative time to be reaching out to clients. So we've a few things here. We've um, done some videos with market updates from our CEO, Scott Danner, um, and we sent those out to 100% of our clients through email. Um, we also did a market update town hall before quarantining started with coronavirus, uh, where we, we had a gathering for clients to come out to in the morning, afternoon, and evening. Uh, so three sessions where they can come out to and just ask questions, have a town hall style um, market update. And then we followed that up 
this past week with phone calls to 100% of our clients. Um, so we've been busy on the phones and just checking in. You know, we all feel uncomfortable during these times, and that's okay. It's actually normal. It's it never feels good when the market goes down. And so the important thing is that they know that we are here. We're an outlet for conversation. And so when they have questions, not to turn to the news or media for them to get their answers, but to ask us. Yeah, you guys have probably got some pretty good lessons for businesses in general on how to deal with crisis. I mean, the financial industry has to deal with crisis and crisis communications and panic in terms of customers and employees kind of every eight years-ish. So, um, yeah, can you give us some specific things that you try to do? I love the whole video communication and messages from your CEO and to the teams. Are there any ways that you try to phrase things differently? Are there any um, tones or different communication styles you try to use that are different from, you know, where, when it's business as usual? Um, yeah, I think the, the key thing is because there's so much panic out there is that you have to be the calming voice to your clients. Um, you have to put things in perspective. Uh, when things are exaggerated and everything is over the top on the news and you have to remind them that things are typically short-lived and that we're in the moment and why the moment seems scary, it's not the long-term. And so you shouldn't make short-term decisions on long-term goals. That's an interesting point, right? Don't make the short-term decisions on long-term goals. Yeah, that's that's a key point because a lot of people are very reactive right now and they are making the very short-term decisions, even if it's short-term decisions related to your business in this, this health crisis. Like I've heard of people that are, you know, laying off 25 people. I'm like, did you think about options like putting them down to part-time? Oh, no, we didn't. So I think you have to be very cautious and careful with making very rash decisions. And then on, what about, what do you tell people just to try to calm them or to, um, to keep them calm during these times when, when you know that things are going to be all right and we're going to turn around again with the market, we'll turn around again with the health crisis. Does that give you guys confidence in dealing with this, uh, this COVID-19 issue right now? I think so. I mean, I think, again, it's important to uh, stay calm when you talk to people, remind them that uh, we do understand and we do feel the same and, and hearing them and how they feel. Um, so listening is key and letting them speak and, and not um, diminishing their feelings. But then again, staying the calm voice and reminding them to stay the course and to let them know what we're doing. So for instance, on our business side of things, we are rebalancing portfolios and taking tax losses that we haven't been able to do for many years for clients. Um, and so hopefully, you know, when they're filing taxes next year, they can look back and be grateful for some of the downturn and some of the advantages we were able to get out of the market. Right. So you're crystallizing some of those tax losses right now. So they'll be able to use them later. That's smart. Yeah, that's a good point. And, it, that, and again, that's a very strategic move right now where some people are panicking, not thinking about it at all, or they're not, not dealing with it in the right way. Um, talking about, about your business in the financial services sector, I'm curious, you guys are all, are often under a lot more regulations than many businesses are. How do you operate around those regulations within those regulations? And, um, you know, how do you use regulations to your advantage as well? Can you give us some insights around those? Sure. Um, so, yep. Highly regulated industry. You have to run an ethical practice first before anything. Well, any business really. We, we always say there's, there's three things, right? Taking care of your people first, having a process, um, and then running an ethical practice. And if you're doing those three things, we believe that you're running a, you can run a profitable business. But you have to do those three things first. People first, then process, and then uh, running an ethical practice. And so uh, the important thing in our practice is that 
as regulations or rules change in the industry is that we communicate those with our clients. And so we have, we have one coming up in a few months in June, actually reg BI is a new um, regulation that's coming out by the sec and, and we have to abide by it. And there's going to be some additional disclosures that are going to go out to clients. But what we do now, what we're doing now to prepare is we're confirming email addresses and, and making sure that those are correct. So when those and letting clients know that they're going to be receiving some disclosures in the mail and what they what they are and what it means to them. So you and so to, we feel so if we stay ahead of it, then it's not a surprise and it feels any future reactive questions that may we may be receiving. And is that is that true of your training as well and trying to stay ahead of the curve with training? It seems like the financial services industry, you guys have to go out and get more updates every year with your training. Is that something that you find helpful or is that a, re a restriction on your business? Um, it's not a restriction. I mean, every year or there's different things. There's always continuing education, which are requirements. So we have to make sure our licenses are, are staying active and that they're, um, we're completing the course requirements each year on ethics and, and how to deal with senior investors and anti-money laundering. And these are some of the things that we have to, we have to do each year for training. And um, it's interesting. I did a, a video podcast this morning or video um, this morning about training our people. And I think we're in a really interesting time right now where if we focus on training our people and growing our skills, we're going to come out of this downturn much stronger. We often during a, a boom time say that we don't have time to train our people. And then now during this time when we have all the, a lot more time and, and people working remotely, my bet is that a lot of people aren't going to bother doing any of the training. It seems to be a kind of an excuse where you're forced to do training as well. Is there any training that you guys do outside of, I mean, you've mentioned you're being a part of the CEO Alliance is something you're doing to work on your skills. Uh, is Scott, the CEO, a part of any organizations and working on his, his skill set? And then do you work on any other leadership skills across your organization or your management team and growing your people? Yep. So we do. We definitely do. We, we actually uh, take pride in it. So we're always looking for opportunities for team members to grow. Um, we, Raymond James, we're fortunate, our broker dealer, Raymond James, um, offers meetings each year. So they have a national conference, which we send some of our associates to. They have a women's symposium, um, which I'm supposed to be going to at the end of this year. They also have training uh, for support staff. And so we send them to home office so they not only can see the departments and the people and the buildings that they're, you know, when they're calling and communicating with our home office, um, but also get some technology training and um, meet other people in the field is important. But we also always look for opportunities for personal growth. We had an employee recently that we were getting ready to send a Tony Robbins event, actually, just for some personal growth. And that got canceled. But, um, but we look for opportunities outside of just work-related that's great. Um, now, another change that you've had to encounter right now, just because of this whole COVID-19 and the whole social distancing that we're going through right now and the family lockdowns and kids at home is you're also a mother of three kids, you said, and you're having to take care of kids while you're also operating a business. How has that change impacted you and how have you had to adapt to that? Yeah, it's been pretty interesting. My Actually, my husband's in healthcare, so he's out and about. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to stay away from him. And then I'm locked myself in my room today just to do this podcast. So um, yes, my children are 13, 11, and seven. And so uh, what I did was I've created a schedule for them each day um, down to each minute of what they're supposed to be doing. So I've incorporated chores and uh, schoolwork and free time um, into their dailies and outside, outside time, make sure they get some fresh air each day. But um, I worked that around conference calls and meetings for myself. So when I was going to be on a conference or doing this podcast, I have them outside 
playing so they're not disturbing me. <laughs> it's funny how we're, we're going to have to kind of adapt all this stuff. It's really interesting right now watching companies have to deal with going remote and how many major like large organizations are adapting to this quite quickly. I spoke to a a client of mine in Colombia yesterday who has uh, 800 employees. He's ramping up to 1,100 this year, and he's got 750 of his 800 people currently working from home, and he's got the next 50 getting ready to work from home this week. He's buying the last 50 people laptops and Wi-Fi access so they can be at home. It's pretty interesting to see how companies that used to be you know, 100 locate 100% location-based are able to adapt during this change. Can you um, talk it to us fascinating. about- It is fascinating. You know what, Cameron? It's, it's interesting to see how many companies are going to maintain that and mm -hmm. see the cost savings maybe on not having you know, uh, an office location, but maybe shifting to something that can work remotely. And, and it's almost like a, it's forcing us to do a trial, this trial period of how it works. Yeah, it's a necessity that is the mother of invention, right? So I think that, that, the, that right, you're right, that being forced to do this is going to all of a sudden give people the experience at how it works or could work. And then not only just to be able to get rid of some expenses like the office, but also be able to hire some of the best talent regardless of where they live. You know, we've, we've been so locked into in many companies this whole idea that it's nine to five and people have to come to our office and they're probably going to have to live within a half hour of the office. Well, it's pretty tough and restrictive on where to get those people. Are you, do you guys find it tough in your industry to find great talent? Uh, yes and no. I mean, um, we have, right now we have eight office locations and we're spread out between a few different states. Uh, so we do have, you know, remote locations, which can be challenging f to be managing. So that's one of the, you know, one of the things I face uh, on a daily basis is how to manage people that are not within walking distance or I can yell to down the hall to. So um, those are the, some things still I'm learning through on how to keep, keep up with coaching and, and communication and making sure that they feel like they're a part of our culture. Why do you have the, the multiple offices? Is it because you're operating or trying to operate in multiple states or have you done acquisitions? What's happened there? Yep. So uh, we have some businesses that have affiliated with us. So they're partners with our firm. And so they're operating their own independent practice, but they tap in, into our shared services platform. Um, but they still require coaching and, and communication from our company. And then um, we do have another set of offices that have that we've acquired and we've built markets around around that location to keep the clients, you know, close to have an office location that's close to where the clients were. What have, what have you learned during those acquisition periods? I'm curious what you've um, what you, what kind of skills you've learned as a company during that period of time. It's important to be. Um, in communication daily with advisors going through transition and or um, and or if they're retiring and to make them feel comfortable. It's very emotional time period uh, for financial advisors transitioning their practice, whether they're, they're phasing out or they're just transitioning from another firm. And so I feel like each time we do one, we learn from it. There's always something different that occurs. Um, you know, the operations part of it is one thing and making sure paperwork's done and clients are transitioned and their accounts are coming over. But it's another thing when you're dealing with different personalities in a high stressful time for them. Yeah. I'm curious how you get that culture fit right in the acquisitions. I mean, I was talking to a CEO the other day and they've done five acquisitions in the last 12 months. And um, I'll tell you what they're doing in a second, but what do you focus on? If you were to give us kind of the top three things to get an integration of a new office happening under your you know, overall banner, what do you do to make sure that that happens well? What do you start with? and What do you focus on first? Yeah, so we've learned through failure 
that um, it's important to have people on the ground. So that especially the first two weeks of somebody transitioning to have a member of our team on the ground um, to be with them kind of holding their hand through the process. And that's more of the emotional handholding uh, more so than the operational. Um, Cause you know, just something as simple as their, their phone lines aren't working or, um, or a client doesn't want to come with them can totally de derail their focus. And so mm. keeping them focused on the, on what matters and, and what's important. Um, it's better to do in person. We learn than have somebody just trying to do that over the phone. Okay. What else? Um, preparing. So letting them know the process, um, ahead of time, the steps, the timeline, uh, what things will look like, what will be required. Um, having people know what the expenses would be, will be, um, having them know that ahead of time, uh, usually helps. So then they're not frantic or surprised on the back end when they see something come through. Uh, we've learned that as well, going through the process, always better to let them know up front. What, um, in terms of communication with them, what kind of things do you have to make sure that you're communicating or, you know, getting across to them in an acquisition to, to keep them calm? Do you talk to them about transition? Do you talk to them about firing? Do you get them to, to meet the people on your leadership team? I'm curious what you do there. Yeah, it's a transition. And so we keep reminding them that it's not like you're going to come over and then this is going to happen immediately. It's a phase out. And so we try and we've come up with our process um, and we and we give them the timeline of what's going to happen. First, you know, there's going to be an introduction letter to of our team to your clients, and then we're going to have an, a welcome a home uh, a welcoming an open house event where they can come in and they can meet us the team face to face because they're going to hear our voice start hearing our voices over the phone for the next several months, and so we kind of phase in little pieces for the clients so that the by the time the advisor transitions out, uh, which we end with a nice retirement party for the retiring financial advisor that where they can invite their friends and clients. Um, by that time that period comes, which is usually anywhere from 12 to 24 months, depending on the advisor, the client already knows in us. They've met everybody. They feel comfortable with the team. Um, and it's a smooth transition. They almost don't even realize the phase out. Mm, for sure. How about in terms of, of the actual negotiations and doing the actual acquisition itself? What have you learned about negotiating and, and doing some of those negotiations? Yeah, so I leave that to Andrew Gregory, who, who leads up our recruiting efforts, and Scott Danner, our CEO. They do most of the meeting and negotiating and recruiting with uh, the financial advisors. And then there's usually a pass down to me and my team when it comes to the operations and the transition to making Got sure it. that goes smoothly. Okay. And you've actually just moved into the COO role and Andrew Gregory has moved out of the COO role. Is that correct? That's correct. And mm -hmm. so how did, how did that transition go where you have one leader who's been in there for a while and then you're transitioning to a new leader? What did you guys learn from doing that? And what do you think you did well in that transition? I think what well was, um, you know, I was the person in the office every day with the employees. I kind of knew everything from the bottom up and the top down. Um, and so when it, we realize when it comes to a chief operating officer in, in a company, the person that's in the, in the midst of everything every day um, is really that role filler. Well, while Andrew works in a different office in the headquarters, so he wasn't there every day, and he's focusing most of his efforts on recruiting, which requires some traveling um, out of town. And so um, we felt like I was kind of filling that role already, mm. and it just made sense for me to have that 
title. So while it's a title change, the role hasn't really evolved yet. We're still, actually before this, we, we were in the hiring phase to start um, getting it more departmentalized where I had some managers leading up some of our departments uh, to help me out so I wasn't so hands-on with everything. That's interesting. It sounds like you guys actually did it correctly where you, you recognize that you match the title to the role. You don't hire a role and give them work to do. Right. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. What's that? No, I was just saying, yeah. So we're, we're going through the phase of transition right now. We were, we just hired a uh, director of client operations. So someone to lead client service, the client service side, and then we're going to be hiring an operations manager to handle the um, operations side for financial advisors. Interesting. What do you look for in the hiring process and what have you learned in doing that hiring process? Do you have any good tips or tricks for us that, that help you do proper interviews and proper selection? Yep. So we, um, we, we phone screen first uh, and I usually do the phone screening. And then if I feel like they're meeting the criteria of what we're looking for and they have the experience of what we're looking for, then the next thing we do is we send them a disc assessment for them to take. And so we see if that if their um, personality matches with the personality of the position that we're looking for. So if we're hiring uh, somebody to do our administrative work and we really need a detailed person to do all this paperwork and follow checklists, then we want to make sure that they're like an SC, right? That they're detail-oriented person on their disc and that they're not a DI, someone who's who, like, like our CEO who's going to be more big picture. I need someone who's going to be worried about the details. So you are using the personality profile to have you screen for the behavioral traits and then you interview for, what do you interview for, cultural fit and skill set afterwards? Uh, yeah. So while well, cultural fit is part of my, my phone interview, so I ask them how, what they're involved in the community, uh, what they do outside of their professional experience. We're always looking for uh, community involvement. It's really important in our culture. Um, everybody on our team does something community-wise. I mean, our CEO runs a wine festival through the uh, Chesapeake Rotary Club here that's raised over a million dollars and given back to local organizations like the Boys and Girls Club and the hospital here. So um, we want people who are involved. How about all the the multiple offices that you're running? How do you stay communicating with them? What tools do you use to um, to stay in touch with them and communicate with them? We have a quarterly uh, newsletter we put out which we usually highlight uh, a new team member uh, with photos. And, and then it also gives some photos of any events that um, teams have done for their clients. Um, it gives some market information and updates as well. And then we try and do twice a year, have a face-to-face meeting uh, where we bring everybody in, meet, and just to discuss upcoming uh, vision, objectives for the year, or where we've come in the last year. Um, and any this, ideas that people want to share? Yeah, state of the union or state of state of the yeah, kind of a state of the union address almost with them all. Yeah, we try you, and make it like a relaxed atmosphere. We'll have it like we our last we did was at the beach. And do you bring, the beach. you bring all the offices together? How often do you bring all the offices and all the employees together? We try and do it twice a year. Twice a year, cool. Now, how about you and Scott? I mean, you've got Scott as a CEO who's probably high D, high I. Your Colby profile is probably slightly different or your, your uh, disc profile is different. How do you and Scott stay on the same page in terms of his vision of the company and your operations and execution? How do you two stay in sync? Yeah, so we're really good because we're opposites. Exactly. He's the DI and I'm, I'm the SC. <laughs> um, so personality, we, we get along great. We've also been <clears throat> friends for many years. 
And so we're able and comfortable to talk freely to one another. If he, he comes up with an idea and I think it's a really bad idea, I just tell him I'm not afraid to have that conversation with him. And did, was that a learned skill for you to be able to do that, for you to be able to have those tough discussions? Um, no, I don't think so. I, um, I have an Italian background, and so usually whatever I feel comes right out. Enough said. Yeah, the Italian's he, really... And he's Italian too, Scott, so he understands it. And so we usually fight it out, and then we're over it. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get a decision made. It's interesting. And I mean, that is really a really strong, strong trait to have in a strong skill in the CEO, CEO relationship. I've always said that the COO's job is to make the CEO iconic and the COO's job is to really tell the CEO what no one else really has the courage to say. So it sounds like you've already jumped over that hurdle really, really quickly, which is pretty strong. What have you, um, when do you have to say no to him? When do you have to, to kind of put the brakes on the CEO's ideas? Cause they often have so many. Yeah. I mean, um, Sometimes I have to put it into perspective. I say, listen, I'm not diminishing your idea. I just don't think it's something maybe we need to jump on right now because mm. we have all these other things going on. Uh, so let's revisit it. So sometimes I'll just postpone the ideas. Um, other times, uh, it may, maybe it financially doesn't make sense. I'll say, great idea. How much that's going to cost a fortune? And he said, is it? You know, he'll make me go back and do the research to see what it would cost and what's the cost of not doing it. Oh, interesting. So you actually show some of the ROI analysis on it as well, right? What would the ROI be of our people, our time, or our money? Yep. Um, what are you working on day to day? What do you focus on as the COO? Um, it's interesting. There's some days I get bounced around so much. I, I look, I reflect back and go, what the heck did I do today? <laughs> you can't pinpoint it. But, um, but what I work on a daily, uh, on daily is coaching, training, making sure uh, my team is following through on processes. How we how can we perfect some things that we're doing? Uh, what do we need to change, and what should we keep doing? That's that's working good. Um, coaching. I mean, there's a lot of phone calls on a daily basis of just coaching teammates, uh, especially right now, checking in, just making sure that our teams are are operating okay and they have all the tools they need to run and operate their business. Mm. That's good. Um, and then in terms of, of your growth, is there anything that you're focusing on specifically learning or specifically getting better at this year? Um, yeah, I mean, growth wise, we, uh, gosh, we, sometimes we can, we say all the time here, we're like a tech startup company. We're growing faster than we know what to do sometimes, but, um, but we did come up with a good plan. We've, we've hired some new associates, which has been challenging right now, uh, getting them trained remotely. Um, but um, I think the direction we're going into, like I said, we're just creating some departments. So we have some more accountability and oversight, which has probably been lacking a little bit up to this point, mm-hmm. um, just because it all fell on my shoulders, right? Of course. So trying to do to um, execute on so many things a day, but then also uh, provide oversight for the team is a little difficult because how much time do you spend on each thing? Right. Yeah, if you're not executing, if you're executing all day, you don't have time to, to do oversight and go behind people. I think we're often trying to work on the business and in the business at the same time, right? That's part of what we have to work on. Yeah. It was a little bit tough. All right. If you were to go back to your 22 year old self, you're kind of, you're graduating from college. You don't have all the numbers behind your name yet. And you were wanted to give yourself some advice. What advice would you give the 22 year old Valerie that you know, now you know to be true, but you didn't know back then? Oh gosh. Um, 
dream big, don't diminish what you do is important. Um, keep working hard. Um, I think, you know, I learned that from a young age. I worked at the, I worked at an Italian bakery actually from the time I was 13. (laughs) I worked there for 10 years and uh, it taught me so many things about uh, customer service and putting people first Mm. and, um, you know, getting up at 6am when you're on the weekends, when you're 13 to, to go open the store. It was, uh, I learned a lot through those times. And, um, and so just, I don't know if I ever um, thought I would I would be doing what I'm doing today. Of course not. Um, no. <laughs> but you, you certainly carry a lot of those lessons with you, which is great. Yeah, and it's okay. You know, it's I think what's important to know is that at, for a CEO position, it's okay to be the person in the background. You don't have to be out in front of everybody and be the one that um, is doing all the speaking and coming up with all the grandiose ideas. Execution and being really detailed. And just doing the daily, uh, the daily operations is just as important as the visionary. That's, that's a great lesson to actually wrap with because it's kind of like I've always talked about the Phantom of the Opera, the, the play on Broadway where you have maybe two or three people at most ever on stage and you have 150 backstage making sure it happens. You've got the tickets and marketing and costumes and lighting and set design and music and the orchestra and all these people having to make sure the play happens, but only three people on front stage. And without the backstage, the show doesn't go on. Without the front stage, the show doesn't go on. It's really a, a true yin and yang partnership that the CEO and COO have. Yep. Valerie Ver- Rivera, the COO of Freedom Street Partners, thank you very much for sharing with us today on the Second Command Podcast. Thank you, Cameron. I look forward to hopefully we can have CO Alliance after the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have lots more events coming up. We'll either be running them in person or running them virtually if we're forced to, but we got lots more stuff on the calendar. So Awesome. Look forward to it. Thanks, Cameron. Take care. Thanks, Valerie. Bye-bye. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc., Freedom Street Partners, is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. Investing involves risk, and you may incur a profit or loss regardless of strategy selected. COO Alliance and Cameron Herald are not affiliated with Raymond James. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Herald. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.